and I'm not saying that you raise your fees to take advantage of the situation, but people who raise their fees as they normally would have, keeping up with the cost of living and inflation, those people were able to offset the drop in clients by having higher revenue per transaction. Hello, Positive Leaders. Thanks for joining us today. You are listening to the Positive Leadership Podcast with Andrea Crabtree and David List, a podcast for everything a veterinary manager needs to know to get the job done. We've been there and we know how hard it is and are here to help share our knowledge and expertise to elevate you. I'm Andrea Crabtree, co-founder of Positive Leadership Podcast, owner of FurPaws Consulting, a certified veterinary practice manager, and HR certified professional. And I'm David Liss, co-founder of the Positive Leadership Podcast. I'm also a certified veterinary practice manager, hold an MBA, and I'm a registered veterinary technician. And this podcast is for you, the veterinary practice manager, supervisor, leader. We want to elevate you by equipping you with relevant content, material, guidelines, instruction, feedback, and pro tricks and tips. We will deliver real life experience along with our super smart guests that will get you through the obstacles that you're facing today with some bloopers and blunders along the way to remind you that you're not alone. FurPaws Consulting has deep expertise in helping veterinary practices reach their full potential for all types of practices, whether specialty, emergency, or general practice, by working alongside the practice owner and manager. Are you a practice owner or practice manager with a challenge and not enough bandwidth to tackle it? Reach out to me, Andrea Crabtree, owner of FurPaws Consulting, with the question that keeps you up at night. I'm able to provide expertise and insight to navigate those tricky obstacles. Find my info in the show notes, email me at andrea at furpaws.us, or check out my website at www.furpawsconsulting.com. Welcome back, positive leadership listeners. Welcome to an amazing 2023. Our first guest of the year is an amazing guest that we had on previously, and we're so jazzed to have him. We invited him back. Darren Osborne, he is the Director of Economic Research at Ontario Veterinary Medical Association and has a master's in economics. Darren, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for coming on to chat with David and I. Welcome back, Darren. I am honored. Thank you very much for having me. We had such a blast the first time that I figured, you know what? He's one we should do again. It was good. It was a good time. So I'm looking forward to a, a good chat with you today. Although you have been on the show without having to read your bio, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I've been, I am an economist. That's usually a conversation stopper right there. <laughs> That's but, it, mic drop. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a benefit for what we're going to be talking about today. I have been working in the veterinary industry for, gosh, a long time, like I think close to 30 years. I started out as a consultant specializing in uh, healthcare professionals, KPIs, fees. And with that, it was a fun, really small firm, like talk about getting in your 10,000 hours quick. And then I did that for about six years. And then I was courted away by my largest client, which was the Ontario Veterinary Medical Association. And I've been there as the director of economic research ever since. And I um, essentially what I do there is uh, they took my role as a consultant, an economic consultant to the association and internalized all the projects and expanded it. And now we work with other associations and VHMA is uh, one of the great associations that we really enjoy working with different corporate groups. Uh, We do research for pharma. 
we do a lot of attitudinal research. It's like a think tank within the association. It's for somebody who is keen into research as I am. It's it's a wonderful, wonderful place to work. And veterinary medicine is such a, a fabulous industry because the people who are involved in the industry are there for all the right reasons. They're big hearts, really, really nice, grounded people. So I'm I'm very fortunate to be where I am. Fantastic. Can you tell me about what you're listening to or reading these days, a favorite book or podcast or class that had a lasting effect on you or something that you're reading today? I don't read business books. I really enjoy reading and life is too short. So I read fiction, whatever I can get my hands on. I really like thrill, like crime thriller stuff. I'm reading this great book. It's an old book, Shibumi, by this guy, Trevanian. If you're familiar with the movie, The Iger Sanction with Clint Eastwood, he wrote that book. And it, it's just a really, really engrossing, very, very well-written book. But as far as um, business books goes, I think the only one that I, the only ones that I think are worth reading, in my opinion, are the one by Stephen Covey about managing your time. I don't recall what it's, um, I can't recall the title, but. Yeah, I know they, which one you're talking about. But it, with a lot of management books, I think all you have to do is read the table of contents and you've basically got the gist of the book. <laughs> That's fantastic. <And laughs> the other book that I actually read cover to cover and I recommend to people is uh, First Break All the Rules, which it's an older management book, but it's really, the takeaway from that is the, in First Break All the Rules, they looked at all of this research into what makes a good manager and they realized, they distilled it down into, I think, 12 components and the overriding one is a good manager recognizes that employees are the backbone of any business or um, any veterinary hospital and focusing as a manager your role is to try and make your employees lives better and to try and your role is to allow them to do their job Anything that they can do their job better or make it easier for them, that is what you should be doing as a manager. A lot of positive yes, reinforcement. Yeah. 100%. Amen. I always say yeah. my mantra is 100% of my job is to make you better at yours, you know, for my, <laughs> my team, my staff, right? Like that's everything I need to be doing. It needs yeah. to be because to make them better at their job, whether that's getting them paid, right? And doing mm-hmm. payroll or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it is, it always has to go right. back to 100% of my job is geared toward making them better. Like everything has to be employee centric, mm-hmm. I feel like, in order for us to be successful in our jobs as practice managers. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. That book, there. Are you talking about the seven habits of highly effective people? No, it's not the seven habits oh. one. It's um, let me, the one I was um, thinking of. Yeah. It's the other big the one. Five, that oh, Blanchard. There's the five minute, oh, no, that's Blanchard. The five minute manager is Ken Blanchard. I don't know. I don't know if I've heard the time one from Covey, but he's got a couple of good ones. He's got first things first, principle centric leadership. I don't know. He's got a few. Anyway, that's I think okay. it's first things first. First things first. First, first, first. first. Yeah, okay. first things first. Yeah, and then the I thing that I learned from that was the that you plan out your week, which works for me because mm-hmm. I work to week, and you put in all of the things that are most important, which is family, things that you want to do personally, and then work your or schedule your work life around that. Mm. And if your kids have a a play that you want to attend at three o'clock in the afternoon, then you can stay up the night before doing a budget. Mm-hmm. And there's stuff that you can do outside of business hours to allow you the flexibility to yeah. have more time within business hours to a point. Like I'm, oh. I remember, it must've been That's you, but I do remember somebody telling me about 
a book and I don't remember it being his book, but that same philosophy of scheduling your time accordingly. And yeah, and you put all your family stuff in or things that mm-hmm. are important to you first and then you fill in work kind of around it. So yeah, mm-hmm. if you're up till three o'clock in, in the morning doing huh. something so that it's you can like be a, off at three o'clock in the afternoon. Right. Yeah. I, I don't remember like it being the, the name of that book, approach. but I do remember that. Yeah. That philosophy. I'll have to read that because I found that interesting. And, and Darren, it must've been you last time we had you on. I found that interesting type of philosophy to schedule. Obviously, like you said, I mean, it's got to be within reason, right? Certain things. but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting philosophy. Hmm. And another guy that I really am a big fan of is a, an American economist who was responsible for rebuilding Japan after the war. So I'm going way back, um, Edwards hmm. Deeming. But he's got some really, really interesting thoughts on management that are, hmm. and it's database, but one of his sayings, and I'm going to ruin it, but it's something to the effect that if you run your business solely by the numbers, eventually you will not have a business to worry about or numbers. And, it, <laughs> it, and if you get, if you're, good. if you give a manager or you or a manager, you give an employee a quota to hit, then they will hit that quota at the expense of everything else going on. If you just focus on the numbers, then it can be to your detriment. Like I want to write an article on KPIs. I'm going to call it KP ish because mm-hmm. there's, <laughs> yeah, I like that lean away a lot of stuff. Like for example, if your average revenue per transaction is really low, it might be because you've got incredibly high traffic with existing clients. Like clients are coming in all the time, then your revenue per client can be really high, but your revenue per transaction can be low. And I've yeah. worked with some managers that look at that and they start freaking out because they see mm-hmm. one of these numbers low and they um, the bot it's a really successful, profitable hospital. Right. And some people just love to focus in on the negative and yeah. how often it can be explained away. Hmm. That's a good point. Well, we could probably go on about KPIs on a separate podcast. Note to self, we probably should do that, Andrea, <laughs> and talk yeah, about right. the pitfalls and pros and cons yeah. of KPIs. But we wanted to bring you on today, Darren, to talk about the R word. There's a lot of buzz flying around about we will be, we may be, we already are in a recession. And so you're an economist, and I am understanding that the word recession is an economic term. My vision of a recession is like, you know, the world is ending, you know, fire, you know, fire and brimstone everywhere. I mean, you know, it has this like horrible connotation. So what exactly is a recession? And is it bad? Quote, unquote, is there kind of implicit negativity to it? Or what does it mean? How does it happen? And where do we kind of go from there? By definition, a recession is where you have three periods of declining production. So within a state or within the country, for three straight months, the production from the the people in that group is less consecutively. And it's in the past, it's often been like during the the financial crisis where they called it the Great Recession, and that was very prolonged. That was due to a a breakdown in the, the financial sector where people were sold houses that they couldn't afford. And the interest rates caught up to them and they started surrendering their houses and it had a expanding impact on the economy. And that was created by, in that case, it was a financial crisis, mismanagement of the financial system. The one that we're looking at right now is really fascinating because 
often recessions are caused by people have too much money. They will outbid each other in an effort to buy things. And if by bidding against each other, they drive up the price of things until it gets to a point where people just run out of money. And in order to protect people from running out of money, the bank will raise the interest rate to try and stop that outbidding of each other. And the argument is that increasing interest rates will curb spending. But that's on the assumption that the spending is because people are just outbidding each other because they have too much money. But the situation we're in now, the price of everything is going through the roof, not because people are outbidding each other, but because of resource scarcity. And like we've all heard the COVID related issues or like if I hear supply chain issues another time, I'm going to freak right. out. Uh, yeah. like, we're all familiar with these. <laughs> nobody, ever, like, nobody ever said supply chain issues. Now people use supply chain issues as an excuse to get away with everything or COVID. Sorry, not my fault. It's COVID. But because of those things, the price of everything has gone up and the bank is raising interest rates to try and curb spending. And in my opinion, all they're doing is making mortgage payments unaffordable again for a lot of people. And I don't think it's the right way to go. Now, I don't have the answer, but I don't think my concern is that raising interest rates is going to put us into a recession. And that is, and, and then people are going to have less money and mm-hmm. then it's good. Then they're going to stop mm-hmm. buying things and then we're going to have the declining production. Which is the total opposite of what we need right now. Right. Yeah, as far as production huh. goes. Yeah. Right. Interesting. So it's kind of a chicken or the egg, but your concern is that the group that is supposed to be kind of quote, they, you know, they say that the central banks would fight inflation. They're actually going to possibly crash the plane as it were. And I think they're contributing to inflation. Yeah, I think they're contributing right. to inflation by raising interest rates. Mm. Now, one of the interesting things that we saw last time was the, I think on paper, the recession started in 2008, 2009, but a lot of veterinary hospitals did not see the impact until 2010. For some people, depending on the demographic, 2011, by the time that it, it made its way through the economy, like unless unless you knew somebody who foreclosed on their house in those days, it would have been so many degrees of separation before the impact of people foreclosing on their homes reached you in doing what you did. So I thought I was being very proactive in 2009. I came out with a, a lecture series, How to Protect Yourself Against a Recession. And I'm giving these lectures all over the place. And people are looking at me like I've got two heads. And they yeah. go, what are you talking about? We're not seeing any of this. Stuff. Like, and, and everybody had heard about the financial crash. But, but veterinarians in 2009, and I, I kept saying, like I, I, in lectures, I said, is anybody feeling this? And they're all looking at me. No, we're not feeling any of that. And it wasn't until 2010, 2011 that things started to get bad. And, and leading up to that, like we've all heard, oh, veterinary medicine is recession-proof. And in 2009, I said, yeah, it looks like veterinary medicine is recession-proof. And then 2010, we started to see the number of clients per veterinarian drop, start to drop. And my response then was, I was wrong. It looks like veterinary medicine is recession-light. And then in by 2011, when we'd seen like probably an 8% drop in Client trend in uh, client visits. That's when I said, okay, veterinary medicine is affected by this recession, not as much as other industries, but they are affected by the recession. So let me ask you then, what is it that we did or didn't do during that time period where we didn't feel the hit? And knowing that 
everybody else in the world was, you know, in the world, everybody else was feeling it, right? Other professions and industries were, and we didn't get through it until years, or maybe two years later in some instances. What could we have done, aka for the future? What could we have done then, you know, without having our head in the sand and saying, oh, veterinary medicine is recession proof? What could we have done or what should we do when we see this happening again? Raise your fees, which sounds counterintuitive, but what we found right. with the last recession was the people I think that fell the most were specialty hospitals, and they were the first ones to fall. And what was happening was before the recession hit, like in 2008, everybody had so much money and housing prices were going up so fast, people were boring against their house and spending that money. And client would go to the veterinarian and the dog would need a cruciate surgery. And the veterinarian would say back in those days, it would say, I can do this surgery, but there's a specialist down the street that can do it for three times the cost. I recommend you go to the specialist down the street. And the client would say, I made $10,000 on my house this week in appreciation value. So yeah, sure. I'll go down the street. So people were so flush with money back then. They were happy to go to specialists and veterinarians were busy enough that they were happy to send clients to the specialists. And then when the recession hit, the people did not have access to those funds anymore. So the veterinarian who was pushing people out to the specialist was now saying, I can do just as good a job for your dog and you can save money. Please do it with me. So the specialty hospitals saw a huge drop in volume because in part, veterinarians, they weren't as excited to send the clients to the specialist because they needed the work themselves because they were starting to see a, a drop in the number of clients. And so then we saw the specialty hospitals start to falter. And then it was the big ticket items that were the first hardest hit. And then it was bread and butter, everything. Like even people said they couldn't afford vaccines. And what we found was that in hindsight, people were not going to the veterinarian because they simply, they were in a, a bad economic state. And there's nothing you could do to get that person to go back to the veterinarian. And, and I know veterinarians who tried lowering their prices to try and appeal to these people mm -hmm. because they felt bad. And it didn't amount to anything because these people were simply not coming in to the veterinary hospital until, they're, until they were more economically prosperous. So we found that people who raised their fees during, and I'm not saying that you raise your fees to take advantage of the situation, but people who raised their fees as they normally would have, keeping up with the cost of living and inflation, those people were able to offset the drop in clients by having higher revenue per transaction. Mm. Okay, so quick follow-up in that, because yeah. your response off the cuff was raise your fees. Okay, so you walked us through that. I totally understand. And then your last comment is, you know, to keep up with inflation. Well, we're seeing an 8% in inflation. So does that mean that we raise our fees that to match that 8% or are, you know, yes. do we stay conservative at that traditional 3% that we see? 8% even more because the we're seeing the veterinary salaries are increasing in excessive inflation, which isn't necessarily a bad yes. thing. Yeah. I measured veterinary salaries increasing 15% last year. So if wow. you've got inflation, like they're forecasting inflation to go down to 3% at the end of next year. So it'll probably be five. Mm -hmm on average through the year, if you've got mm -hmm. uh, veterinary salaries going up by 15% and you've got inflation going up by five, you need to raise your fees eight to 10%. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. Just yeah. to tread water. Offset it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're right. 
given what everybody's gone through in the last few years, I don't think it's fair to ask the staff to work harder because they, they right. just, they can't, they've been through too much with COVID and everybody is still incredibly busy and to, I think mm-hmm. it's really insensitive to say, I don't want to raise fees. I just want everybody to work harder so we can make right. the bottom line. Yeah. And uh, not give them a raise. Yeah. And, right. You know, yeah. So in keeping with this, because I want to go down this path for a minute, is there a point at which, and this is, I think, a concern that a lot of practitioners have, or at least some do, is there a point at which you price yourself out of a market? Do you see, what do you see on the price sensitivity front, Darren, in terms of how high can you go, especially with veterinary clinics? Many of them have done, you know, eight, 10% raises every year for the last two, three years. Is there a point at which you start to get a negative press in the community, B, lack of return clients, and then see a certain point where your volume drop fails to offset your higher um, average transaction, so you end up losing bottom line or get, taking that hit? So we do research every year with pet owners, and we the most important thing on that survey for me is tracking pet owners' price sensitivity, and their price sensitivity has gone down with COVID. Really? And wow. Because they are so, because the demand for services is so high. I think clients are so much more appreciative to have a veterinarian, they'll pay. And now also to be fair during mm. COVID, especially at the onset of COVID, there was nowhere else to spend your money. So True. if you had a, a $2,400 dental surgery bill come out of the blue, it was, I got nothing else to spend. I got that on my visa. So why not? Right. That's going to be more difficult. Okay. Well, fair enough. That's interesting. So you mentioned a this kind of lag effect, which if you think about when we think that maybe we were in the depths of this last recession, 2008, you say it showed up in the veterinary industry around 2010. So, you know, I guess two questions for you. One is, do you think that we are in a recession now? And I ask because having just popped on the TV here and there, there literally seems to be two camps, some that say yes, because the US has had two negative quarters of or negative GDP, but then we don't have unemployment really as high as they would think. And then some that say, absolutely not, we're not in a recession because unemployment and, and we're changing definitions apparently. So there's that that one question then, if, if depending on what you think, whether we are in one now or might be on the teetering edge of one, do you predict that it'll show up in a few years in the veterinary industry or are we going to take a hit in 2023? So I think whether or not we're in a recession, the important thing to note, and I don't know, to be honest, but because you're right, those two sides. But the one thing that I am certain of is that everybody is afraid we're going into a recession. So people are already starting to change their spending habits, regardless of whether or not they've been affected or they will be affected because people are afraid right now with the the talk of interest rates going up, the, the talk that we're going to be going into a recession in 2023. So when that same client gets the $2,800 oral surgery quote, they're thinking to themselves, it's not in during COVID, it was, I got that on my visa, no problem. Now it's like, wow, I don't know what this year is going to look like. Do I have to do it? Is there a less expensive alternative? That's what veterinary hospitals are going to be dealing with. Whether or not we go into a recession or not, the concern that the perception that we are going to be going into a recession, it already is changing people's spending habits. Mm. Yeah. And the other interesting thing about going into this is, as you mentioned last couple of years, not so much 08, but the pandemic was the stimulus. So as you said, people, I mean, so in 08, they had home equity and they could take, you know, they could, they could leverage that in 2020 and 2021, we had stimulus. So they had 
you know, people people can't sit idly with cash. So they sit there and they have cash in their bank and they don't need to work or they were working maybe and still remote and still getting paid and had that. So if we lose both of those things, I mean, the housing market is up, but it's also been coming down and they lose that. They also lose a job. They also don't have the stimulus. You know, where do we go in terms of having people be able to spend on veterinary medicine? How hard does the industry hold up to that? And I'm a, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. So I, I have a really hard time finding the bad side of anything. But I think that we, with COVID and the, the huge surge we had in puppies and kittens, I think we've got a lot, of, a lot more momentum behind us than we did in 2008. Because going into, going into the recession in 2009, 2010, veterinarians, veterinary hospitals were busy-ish, but not crazy busy like they have been up until the last couple of months. So we were going from not having an appointment, not taking new clients, not having an appointment available for a month, booking out elective surgeries more than a month, booking out dentals more than a month. Now we're at the point where people are worried because they see an opening in a day. It's like, oh my gosh, the world is ending. Now there's an opening in the schedule. There there used to always be openings in the schedule. And there's a I thing feel like it's a pendulum where it, it for a long time it was on one side, right? And then it swung the other way and we didn't have any openings. And now it's kind of coming back full circle or, or balancing out and we're panicking. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't you remember back in the day we could actually breathe? Yes. We're forgetting about that. Don't panic about the one open slot that's there. Yeah. And one of the things that has happened with veterinary hospitals being crazy busy is, and I'm not judging or trying to find fault with anybody. But in a lot of hospitals, they were just simply trying to survive the day. So parasite sales are down significantly because with curbside, it was very difficult to remind the client that, oh, by the way, you didn't pick up your parasite medication when you've got Mm -hmm. some poor tech who's trying to find the the car that this dog belongs to. That was hard enough, let alone trying to remind them that they need to do a parasite. um, They need to pick up their parasite medication. So a lot of the preventive care stuff really fell by the wayside. Like I know hospitals that did not contact any of their clients for heartworm testing because there was no room to fit them if they did come in test. Yeah, they slowed down on their reminders because of that, right? Yeah, and people would do one reminder, but people were not doing, like in the the olden days before COVID, we used to recommend keep reminding the client until they say no. And now there's hospitals that have not sent out any reminders because they were busy enough. So- just getting back onto, let's assume that things get really slow. With the clients who are still coming in, if we can get those clients back on a parasite program, we can get them back on more preventive medicine. That in and of itself, I think will be enough to get revenues up to carry us through a recession. And the other thing that, that fell by the wayside was forward booking or pre-booking. Then that we all saw the research showing how successful compliances when clients are, are forward booked or pre-booked, getting back to that is going to make a huge difference. The only, the only yeah. concern I have is that there's clients who have gone for two years without parasite medication and, and the dog is still walking and talking or barking. So now when you say, oh, you need to put you back on parasite medication, the client's going to say, well, it seemed to be fine. Why now? That's going to be a difficult conversation for some people. Yeah, I agree. And I think that Almost like my question really gets into is like preparing for a recession or or getting back to I want to say the basics so much of what you're talking about is just like some wellness care and preventative medicine and 
we were just drinking from a fire hose for two years. And so now that it's settled down a little bit, right. It's like, okay, we got to get back to comprehensive care. And I think we, we missed the boat on that for a while. And, but how do you have those conversations with clients? Right. That's a, a little bit tough. What are some other things that you think help us prepare for the recession ahead? I mean, you mentioned forward booking and, and, you know, getting back into the reminders, is there anything else that you think financially that we need to be looking at in order to help prepare us for what's coming? Well, if it's inevitable, right, what's coming soon, or even to get back to where we were? Well, if you want to be like the um, when you talk basics, you were talking about getting back to basics with the clinical veterinary medicine, but getting back to the basics with management, raise your fees, put the practice on a budget so you can start monitoring the growth. Or if things are like one of the things that I found with the recession, and to be honest, a lot of veterinary hospitals do not budget regularly, but the ones that did budget during the last recession, they were able to ride that wave down and it was a lot more comfortable for them because they saw revenue go down. They were looking at their bottom line on a monthly basis and they started cutting things out quickly, like cutting out some of the perks before versus other people, they would wait till the end of the year and their accountant would say, wow, you had a really bad year. What happened? And the veterinarian would look at the account and say, wasn't that your job to tell me? Yeah, right. <laughs> Hindsight. And, yeah. Right. Then it's too late. Well, it's not too late, but but it, there's a lot of stuff you could have done. So setting up a practice budget. The other thing is most veterinarians are very risk averse and do not carry a lot of debt. But if you have, if you're in the position to pay down debt, with interest rates going up, if you can pay down any of your debt, you can save a lot of money on interest payments. Uh, and the other thing that I've, I've always recommended, even during good times, is set aside a reserve fund. And this is where we saw the benefit or the glaring lack of preparedness when COVID first hit. And remember when it was, I think, March, and everybody had a banner March for the first half. So even though clients were restricted from coming into practices in a lot of jurisdictions, most veterinary hospitals still posted a positive growth in March, the first March of COVID. Then April and May, revenues were down 25, 35%. And there were some veterinary hospitals that had no money in the bank and they were struggling to make payroll. And some of them were, were using personal money to make payroll and freaking out thinking that this, and, and to be honest, in the first two months of COVID, I thought that we are looking at a 25% reduction in revenue for the year. So I was preparing hospitals for a 25% reduction. And the ones that had a, a reserve fund set aside, they had enough to cover payroll for April and May. And then you recall what happened June and July, the rebound was so significant that it offset all the losses in the first two months. And then it's just been crazy busy since then. But the my recommendation would be to put aside a reserve fund that would be three months of expenses. Got it. So, so I'm, and I'm uh, taking multiple. Yeah, dive in, here. David. So, yeah, yeah, three months of expenses for the owners and or the managers if they have that level of financial involvement, pay down debt, especially if they took on debt at higher interest rates. If it was like you know super low interest rates, you know maybe maybe you ride that out, right? Um, and, and, and for then, debt, a lot of that can just in a lot of hospitals, it's simply being at the they're maxing out on their line of credit. And and yeah, some veterinarians right. over the last few years, because money has been the interest rates have been one percent, 
2%. They've been carrying this line of credit and just have never worried about paying it off because it didn't cost enough. The cost of carrying it was insignificant. So now the cost of carrying that line of credit is is significant. So pay that line of credit off and get it down to zero. Right, right. I mean, if it's a... Yeah, if it's a floating rate, then you're going to be riding up that curve and and having to having to take on that extra interest extra interest expense, which you may not be able to afford, right? If we're going into a slowdown. Yeah. So those are awesome. I think those are great tips for our listeners. What about budgeting? You know, it's a bit of a daunting task for a practice that may never have done it, and maybe no offense meant at all, but you know, kind of uses you know a family friend or a bookkeeper to do the books worth versus like a CPA or a an accounting firm, do you have any kind of off the cuff, good resources or recommendations for where practice could start building a budget for themselves? If you go into QuickBooks and a lot, and a lot of people use QuickBooks for their bookkeeping and accounting, if you set up a budget with QuickBooks and you simply copy the previous year and just assume expenses are going to be the same, it's a good place to start. And then you can start track. Like a lot of people will budget revenue and People will look at revenue for like in a couple of days, a lot of managers are going to look at revenue from December and they're going to compare it to December last year. And a lot of people are going to look at revenue for the total year because it's the end of the year and they're going to compare it to revenue from the previous year. With budgeting, you take that comparison and you flip it forward and you say, okay, this is what it was last year. This is what it is this year. What can it be next year? And the worry about that with revenue and if you're like if you're raising your fees 8% to cover inflation then i'd say budget an 8% increase in revenue and then just you can there's a a feature in quickbooks where you can simply copy the previous year and it'll just fill in all the expenses from the previous year and use that as the start point the only thing that getting into the weeds and getting but the only thing that's going to be incredibly inaccurate is you have to watch your three paycheck months so because if you have a three paycheck month, it really affects yeah, good tip. Yeah. And if you miscalculate that three paycheck month, it can make a month look like a banner month when it's not a banner month, or it can look like a horrible month when it wasn't a horrible month. Like if you were expecting a three paycheck month and you've budgeted for that, and let's say you've your payroll is usually a hundred thousand dollars a month. And if you have a three paycheck month, then your payroll is going to be a hundred and fifty thousand dollars a month. If you budget $150,000 a month and you miscalculate and it's a two paycheck month, you've got $50,000. You right. Yeah, you're in the hole. <laughs> so it, that's the only thing that you have to worry about with carrying it, the expenses forward is you've got to go in and, and manually fix the, the three paycheck months. But other than that, that's a good place to start. So you told us some, some things that we don't do that we need to do. What about some good practices. What are some good tips that are something that can be super easy, low-hanging fruit, actionable items that we can do when we get in the office tomorrow morning? Raise your fees. Pull the string on my back and I raise your fees. <laughs> that's your. That's <laughs> going to be just the quote of the episode. Raise fees. Right? No, I'm kidding. Yeah. We know where you're coming from, but I mean, you're right. It's kind of a, I don't want to say And I mean that sincerely. Because, it is the it simplest, is. most effective way to make a change. For the better. Do you recommend yeah. that for yeah. our shopped items as well? I always feel like I get pushed back when I tell my clients to raise your right. fees. It's a good question. They, they yeah. always say oh, they don't want to raise their office call. They don't want to raise their, you know, spay or their whatever it is or shopped items. Do, Vaccines, do you recommend that across right. mm-hmm. the board? Yeah. And I will take a more strategic approach with people who are more concerned. And in some cases you need to be concerned. 
I don't think the exam is as shopped as people say it is, but but let's say let's assume I'm wrong. So the ones that people are concerned about, the shopper ones are your exam, your vaccines and your elective surgeries. That's it. So let's increase those by the rate of inflation, which is going to be 5% next year. So we're just raising those at the cost and then raise everything else by 15%. The average is going to be 10 and we'll have enough to carry inflation and those veterinary salaries into 2023. And do you do that at one time, like January 1, bam, get it done? Or should right. it be well, like spread out throughout the year? Or well, Yeah, what's that's your a good question. That? I have that question too, because I have a lot of people that say, I prefer to do 2 3% every few months. And then I have some people who just say, I pull the trigger. You know, is there any, and what's your thought and any economic pro, like thought process on, on whether we well, do well, it as mathematically, one shot or? Mathematically, you're better off to do it immediately because you get the benefits over the whole year. If you spread it out, then like, let's say you do it in, in thirds, then two thirds of the increase isn't going to be realized until the last part of the year. Mm, but however, if the only way you, you will raise your fees is sneaking it by yourself by doing three smaller increases or two smaller increases, then there's no wrong way to raise fees as long as you raise them. But I, the easiest way to do it is just tear off the bandaid January one, which is a very conspicuous time for everybody to change things. That's when you do it. And the other, given what's going on right now, we are at a point where inflation is high. People are expecting the prices of things to go up. And we're, we're fearing a recession, but we're not in a recession. So right now, people have a reason to raise your fees because of inflation. And you've got the confidence to raise your fees because we're not in a recession yet. So if you hold off, then my concern is that you'll lose your resolve. Because we do go into recession, right. and even though I'm saying you should raise your fees during a recession, it's very difficult for people to raise their fees when people are complaining about the price of everything and they can't afford it, then it just seems callous to raise your fees. So make hay while the sun shines, so do it while you can. So yeah. January 1, raise your fees. Can you give one piece of advice, and this does not necessarily have to be a financial piece of advice, but one piece of advice to our listeners today? Do something for your staff. They've gone through an incredibly stressful time. And with inflation being what it is, they need, if they haven't had a cost of living raise, they definitely need a cost of living raise and treat them well because they, they've been through a lot and they will carry you through 2023. Yes. Say it again for the people in the back. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> and let me just ask Darren, since you opened the can of worms, when you say, you know, to give them a COLA raise or a cost of living raise. Does that need to match the 8% knowing that that's what we're facing as, as the consumers, right? And on the other end, we're not necessarily consuming veterinary medicine, but we're consuming everything else. So does that mean that we need to raise those wages by 8% or can we do something to offset that maybe bonuses or something else so that we're not stuck with those higher stuck with i say that like that's a bad thing but financially we're on the hook for that too right but or i don't think circle don't, back to raise your fees are, i don't think prices are going to go down like they, the inflation might stop but the cost of living well they're talking about it going down to three percent which is still as far as inflation goes the that's regular. still pretty high yeah. and yeah. the the eight percent was to cover their costs for up until now for the end of 2022 so i'm a big fan of tagging the fee increase to the wage increase. And then, then you're blaming the staff because if you're concerned about staff resisting a fee increase, you can say, I want to give you guys a raise. 
the only way we can afford to give you all raises is if we raise fees. And for the average companion animal hospital, non-DVM wages work out to about a third of your expenses. So there's a three to one ratio with fees and wages. So if you raise your fees 8%, theoretically, you could raise your non-DVM wages 24% and break even. And I'm proposing that you raise your fees 8%, you raise your staff wages 8%, you're going to benefit from two thirds of that fee increase. Yes, yes, for sure. All right. I love it. I'm on board. I'm going to preach it to my hospitals and let's see what happens. Right. No, I'm not an HR. I've done research in HR, but I don't have any credentials, but I'm, I'm not a fan of bonuses because I've encountered situations working with hospitals where they lose staff to a neighboring hospital to, for a higher wage rate. And the practice owner, the practice manager says, well, if, if they factor in the bonus that we give them, they actually earn more. But people don't think like that. If you're paying somebody $24 an hour and you give them a $10,000 bonus, they're going to think that they're getting 24. They're going to say that they're getting $24 an hour. And if they're comparing themselves right. to a friend who's making $27 an hour, then they're going to say, I'm paying they compare. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Plus, there's kind of also that idea of, I think of, I mean, I've used bonuses and, and think that they probably have their place in the tools, but there's kind of a dopamine hit that you get, right? So first of all, you say you're going to get $10,000 as a bonus. I don't know what the tax rates are in Canada, but in the, in the States, you're probably going to get about half of that. So you look at your check and you go, oh, it's already 5,000, right? So it automatically yep. diminishes that. And then you give them, say, a bonus in, you know, for like a holiday bonus, right, of whatever it is. In about February, they start to go, or Feb March, they go, I want another 5,000. I want to, you know, I mean, it, it's kind of that idea of getting that, that kind of spike and that drop off. Um, additionally, I don't know if $5,000 in somebody's pocket means as much as them being able to see an increase in their check every two weeks and then say, I can get a nicer car or I can, you know, buy nicer food or whatever that is to kind of add, you know, on their kind of regular daily expenses versus $5,000. What am I going to do with this? Many people will say, I'm going to buy a TV. I'm going to go on a cruise. And that doesn't really help their COLA, right? Like it doesn't actually make their day-to-day life any better. So I definitely hear you on that. Um, and I think it's a really interesting topic. It's it's a tool, but I definitely see your point as to why don't you just take that 10,000 divided by 26 and give them that raise in their paycheck, right? It's the same effect and they might even save some taxes on it. I agree. And I say to managers and hospital owners, if you're concerned about paying somebody too much money, you're at the point where like, if you're paying the highest rate in the city, then you can get the best person in the city. The two can go hand in hand. Yes, you become the sought after employer. Yes. So if you're yeah. concerned that you're overpaying somebody, it's not always a problem of the pay being too high. It's the person isn't up to the challenge. So find the other, find, well, and that, okay, that, it's not fair to say find another person because they're just not out there right now. That's another issue that. Yeah, we, that's the problem is then we end up overpaying. We might be the, the, the best paying employer in the town, but we're overpaying for that particular skill set because. There's nobody else to gather from. Yeah, you can't find people. So we're overpaying, but that, that's who showed up because it's not like they're knocking on your door because you're the best employer out there. They're knocking on, you know, there's very few knocking on the door. So I do feel like, you know, if we are overpaying, it's overpaying. There's a disconnect between the skill set and what it really is. But again, that's a whole nother like rabbit hole. We could go to a whole nother episode. We can go down about wages and. But, and yeah, that's why right. I'm treating <laughs> really well. Because yes, you don't want to lose them. It's more about culture than about pay. Pay. Yeah. Treat them well. Yes. Good advice. Pay them more and treat them well. 
So Darren, I know that you have, I'm sure, had loads of experiences where you just, you know, put your palm to your forehead and went no freaking way. So can you tell us about your moment where you've had just jaw dropping, you can't make this shit up story? I was working with a veterinary hospital that was ready to close up shop because they were not making any money. And the practice owner was saying like, I can make more money as an associate than I can as a practice owner. And it was painfully obvious to me that his fees were just way too low. And I said to him, you need to raise your fees. And he said, how much? I said, well, compared to other hospitals in the area, you could double your fees and still be competitive. But I know you're probably not going to do that. So you need to do an aggressive increase. And I can't remember what we agreed on, something like 10 or 15% or maybe even 25%. And he said he would raise his fees and off I go. and he contacted me about a year later and said, I followed your advice and I doubled my fees. And I said, how did that go? He said, my wife and I are able to put a down payment on a house. Wow. So going from ready to close up shop to increasing his fees to the point where doubling his fees. And then the, it was a fantastic success. Well, there you go. There's your advice. Increase your fees. Yeah. Oh, my God. I said it again. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have to have a count as to how many. Yeah, right. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, uh, all that guy ever says is raise your fees. I go, that person clearly knows me. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, right. That's the answer to everything. (laughs) It is true, though. The top line fixes all problems, to be honest. Hey, Andrea here. Have you seen our social media pages? Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can also find us on our website, www.positiveleaders.com. And if you like what you see there, be sure to give Rhonda and Linda a shout out over at Dog Days Consulting. They do all of our social media management. They even built our website. Those ladies can work some creative magic for your business and your brand. Check them out on Facebook at Dog Days Consulting or visit their website at www.dogdaysconsulting.com. So at this point in the show, we're going to go into the rapid fire. Tell me about your most epic failure that has left a lasting impact. The very first report that I ever wrote had an arithmetic error in it. I hate typos and errors and I always triple check my work now every time I do anything. Tell me about your proudest moment. Getting invited back, getting invited back to a conference, getting invited back to a hospital to consult with them again, or in this case, getting invited back on a podcast, because that makes me think that what I'm doing is resonating. Why veterinary medicine? What do you love about our profession? Veterinarians are different from other healthcare professionals, because they are there because they love animals. People who work in the veterinary industry are there because they genuinely love animals. Self-care, how do you practice it? How do you decompress and de-stress? I run a lot. How do you balance work and life? And do you experience any work guilt in that balance? I quite honestly do a horrible job of balancing work and life. I work a lot more than I should. What keeps you up at night, things that stress you out or cause you anxiety in your role, in your business, in your job, in the world? I'm pretty lucky the way I'm wired. I can sleep within 10 seconds of my head hitting the pillow. I think that's also having ADHD 
you shake out the sillies all day. And then when you put your head down, you fall asleep. And what gets you up and out of bed in the morning? What excites you to start your day? Going for a run. If you were to pick a color that best exemplifies you, which would it be and why? Purple, because that was the color that Prince loved and he was cool and I want to be cool. And if you could be any animal in the world, what would it be and why? I think my cat's got a pretty cool life. Awesome. Well, Darren, again, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you. It's always such a titillation of the mind to have you on and dropping some truths on us. So thank you so much again for coming back and looking forward to a great, prosperous, and probably challenging, but exciting 2023. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. For all the positive leaders listening out there, we hope you learned something to take back to your practice to put into use tomorrow. We want to hear from you, good, bad, and everything in between. So email us at positiveleaders at gmail.com. That's positive with a P-A-W. Want to hear about a specific topic on the podcast? Email us. Want to have your You Can't Make This Shit Up story featured? Email us. You can listen to us on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the Positive Leadership Podcast. And be sure to rate us. Check out our website at www.positiveleaders.com. That's positive with a P-A-W. And as always, catch us on all the socials. This is Andrea. And David. Signing off until next time. Stay happy and sane. The Positive Leadership Podcast is solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast are general in nature, and such information, statements, comments, views, and opinions, and the receipt of this podcast by any listener are not intended to be and should not be construed as the provision of any business advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers and guests, are those of Andrea Crabtree, David Liss, and their guests only, may not be current, and do not represent the statements, comments, views, and opinions of any other person or business entity. Andrea Crabtree, David Liss, and or the Positive Leadership Podcast do not make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the information, statements, comments, views, or opinions contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage of any kind whatsoever, is expressly disclaimed.